Before we start looking at Acts chapter 19, I want to start where we left off last week. Last week, we were with Paul in Athens. We're looking at the book of Acts. It's the kind of story of the explosion of the church, and he's going around preaching the gospel in different cities. And he was in Athens, and if you remember, he was immediately confronted by what we call idolatry. That this is a city of statues and shrines around every corner. And his message to the people of Athens is essentially, God is not a stone statue. There's a living God, a God who gave you life and breath and everything. So do not worship these stone statues. And we, that, we use that to introduce the idea of idolatry, to say we are more like the Athenians than we realize. That all people were made to worship the living God. That he was intended to be the source of joy and peace and security in our lives. But instead, we turn away from worshiping him and we start worshiping created things. And where they might have worshipped statues, we might worship good things, things like our career or success or um, our, uh, the prospect of being in a relationship or even the happiness of our children. And we take these good things and we make them ultimate things, that they become the reason for our, our life, the kind of mini-God that we live for and worship. One, I read you one quote last week that kind of summarized this, is this. Remember, idols are God replacements. This is what he said. Anything more important, what is an idol? Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give. And so we introduced this idea of idolatry. I said that all people, whether you're Christian or secular, wherever you are, you will relate to this idea of idolatry. And now we're going to look at Paul's preaching in Ephesus. And it's again really engaging with this idea of idolatry. And I want to look at specifically the idol of self. The idol of self. So in Acts 19, do you want me to switch microphones? No, you can't. Okay. Paul is being confronted by a man called Demetrius and the silversmiths of the city. They are offended because Paul's gospel proclamation is taking great effect He's been in Ephesus for over two years, and as he's been preaching there almost on a daily basis, people are coming to faith, and as a result, people, they are not worshipping Artemis. Artemis is the, the kind of god of Ephesus, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. But they are, the, the silversmiths, their whole livelihood is tied to the worship of Artemis. They make altars and shrines, and they, they kind of facilitate, in some way, the worship of Artemis. And they are naturally concerned. As people are turning to Christ and away from Artemis, they're saying, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to our livelihood if everyone stops worshiping Artemis? And so that's what we're going to read. This kind of riot breaks out. So, Acts 19, starting from verse 23. About that, this, that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That is, talking about Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. There he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Pay attention to that. That's the one kind of bit of Paul's preaching that we hear in this passage, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may be even deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia, that's talking about Turkey, Western Turkey, and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. We can assume they're his fellow workers. But Paul... But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, the kind of leaders of the city, who were friends with his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. They're worried if he goes in there, he's going to be pulled limb from limb. He's going to be killed. 
Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they'd come together. The crowd is in this kind of uproar and frenzy. They don't even really know why they're there. They've kind of been so... You've seen that in riots. People start doing all sorts of things, and they kind of lose sight of what originally brought them there. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. So this is Alexander. He's a representative of the Jews. They are prob- he's probably about to say, these guys, these Christians, they're nothing to do with us. He's going to basically disassociate himself from the Christians. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make an offense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine that. This, this, this place, this temple, uh, the, the, sorry, this kind of uh, stadium where they're doing this could hold about 20,000 people. Imagine 20,000 people chanting loudly, Great is Artemis. As a Christian, you would be deeply intimidated by that. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. I think they are, actually. If, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What I want you to see as we deal with this rather riotous scene is the sense to which we are witnessing a confrontation of worship. There is a confrontation between those who worship Christ and the city that worships Artemis. The Artemis cult dominates the city. She is a uh, female goddess, and um, she, her temple literally physically dominated the city. It was a, a huge temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. Uh, it had 127 columns, each one six foot wide and 60 foot high. So you can imagine the temple just kind of dominated the skyline. On top of that, you heard a, a st- it talked about a stone falling from the sky. There were reports that there was a, a meteor that had landed nearby. And effectively, they thought that uh, the great goddess Artemis had revealed herself through this meteor, basically. And so you can imagine almost like an overshadowing over the city. So she physically dominates the city. But it's more than that. She also is deeply connected with the success of the city. She is the great goddess Artemis of financial blessing. And indeed, because of her existence, because of the kind of context, she made Ephesus wealthy because people came to see her. So she was kind of intimately connected with tourist trade and business. And so Ephesus had grown up really on the back of, the, of this woman, of this goddess's reputation. And if you were an Ephesian, she would have dominated your life. You would have attended the temple in her name. You might have worked for a guild that was named after her. You might have had a shrine like made by Demetrius, one of his pals, um, in your home to worship uh, her at home. You would have spent a, a week. There was an annual festival in the spring in her name. So she kind of dominates city life. And what we see is that there is an inevitable confrontation. As Christ the Lord is preached to this city... Paul cannot help but challenge the worship of Artemis. In effect, you could say, if someone comes to faith in Christ, he cannot simply remain going to the temple and doing all those things. To follow Christ is to reject Artemis. The two are inextricably linked. In a sense, what he's saying is you can't, keep follow, you can't say, I'm a follower of Christ and still worship at the temple of Artemis. One writer on this comment, uh, John Stott, on this section in the book of Acts, said, this conflict This confrontation is inevitable. It was inevitable that sooner or later, the kingly authority of Jesus would challenge Diana, another word for Artemis, evil sway. And this really speaks to what we proclaim as Christians. We say, Jesus Christ is savior of the world. That you can come to him, repent of your sins, and receive forgiveness, and be assured of his forgiveness. We say Christ is our savior, but we also preach Christ as Lord. In Exodus chapter 20, the first commandment that God gives his people, says, I am the Lord your God, and then 
you shall have no other gods before me. There's a kind of inextricable, you can't just have Christ as saviour. You can't just have one who forgives you. He must also be your Lord. So the question we have to ask ourselves is who is Artemis for us? Who is the God that looms over our culture? I want to argue to you today that that there's such a thing as a cultural idol. Last week we spoke about individual idols. You might say, I worship my career and I live for that. And that becomes the kind of thing that you worship. But also cultures have specific idols that they worship. Idols that are weaved into the narrative that the culture tells itself. You can see this in mono-religious cultures. You know, think about Catholic Italy and now the, the sense to which the, perhaps in the 19th century or the 20th century, the whole community would have been united around the Catholic faith and the, the festas and the saints' days and it was kind of inextricably linked to the culture. Or another example of a cultural idol, one that I think is quite helpful, is the idea of in the Enlightenment, we, we, we took something good, which is reason, and started to worship it. The Enlightenment, a period probably starting about the uh, 18th century at some point, um, it's basically this point in Western culture when the idea of reason goes from a good thing to becoming the thing that will save us. And so society becomes uh, kind of saying, look, let's do away with all religious superstition. Let's instead focus on education and rationalism. And let's educate ourselves. And there's a kind of God of reason that dominates the culture. And of course, those hopes, those, those, that worship is, it fails, in a sense, because when you get to the 20th century, we're more educated than we ever were. And of course, incalculable human evil is done, saying that education, mere reason, is not enough to save us. That's one example of a cultural idol. So if Artemis is their cultural idol, and thinks about, for, I think for our, us, the idol that stands behind almost all the other idols in our culture is the idol of self. We have removed God from the throne, and instead we have put ourselves on the throne instead. As, our, as, as you hear the crowd chanting, great is Artemis, I want you to believe with me that our culture is almost consciously or unconsciously chanting, great is self. Great is self. Let me give you a few reasons to why that is, why we've, what we might call deified, made a god of the self. You can see it in the idea of the primacy of what we call personal autonomy. The idea that what I think, what I believe about myself is of absolute significance and must be adhered to, must be obeyed even. The word autonomy sounds kind of benign, doesn't it? But what it means is autonomos, auto-self, nomos, law. I am the lawgiver of my life. What I believe and what I think, that is the ultimate authority. If you need any convincing of that being the cultural narrative, uh, 74% of millennials, I think this is in the US, but I'm sure the case is the same here, when asked what is truth, said whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth that you can know. Whatever is right for you, whatever you believe, that is your truth. That is your law. And of course, you can never question anyone's narrative. You think about all the different hashtags, it sounds a bit trite, but I think they kind of prove this out. Hashtag live your your truth. Hashtag never change. Hashtag follow your heart. The language around our culture is so often about endorsing this sense of self. But Christianity says, no, it's not autonomous. It's not you are your own lawgiver. You don't get to determine your ethics and personhood and identity and gender. No, you are made by God who made you and who defines how you should live. There's a fundamental confrontation taking place in our culture between the idol of the self and the worship of Christ. And actually, you can see that because you can see here, by what they are confronting, you can kind of see what the society is worshipping. So where is the area of confrontation in culture between Christianity and the the culture? And often, I think, you can see it in the area of sex and gender identity. Sexual and gender identity. I think that's one illustration here which bears out this idol of self. You see, the modern idea of transgenderism would effectively say, when someone says, I am a boy trapped in a girl's body, there'll be many in our culture who'd say, yes, I accept that. I'm a boy trapped in a a girl's body. And what is going on there? It's not necessarily a kind of gender ideology that's going on there. They've thought about it. Actually, what they're really saying is, I believe in the primacy of personal choice. I, 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 I believe in your ability to determine who you are. That is why I support you when you make a claim which seems to go directly against biological reality. 
Because I say, no, you are the self, and so you must be the one who authors your reality. And that the Christian would challenge that, say, no, you are your body. And really what they're doing is also challenging the idol of self-definition and self-expression. Effectively, we're saying the living God knows you better than you know yourself. That he actually has created something as kind of absolute truth. And you cannot run against the truth that he has revealed into the world. Even if your feelings don't seem to fit with that reality. You can see this in a number of different places. One other place, remember last week when we looked at... um, Acts 17, Paul started quoting their own poets. He said, even your own poets say this. Well, let me say, even your own atheist journalists tell you that you worship yourself. And this week in the Spectator magazine, Matthew Paris, who's not a Christian, um, he's, he's talking, and the, the article was entitled The God Complex. And in it, he says, essentially, we, lived it, we used to live in times that were, people were less judgmental towards each other, less censorious towards each other, less likely to censor each other and cancel each other. And he says, no, actually, that's not the case anymore. We're much more likely to challenge each other. Why? Because we've made ourselves God or judges. This is what he says. Today, a new Puritanism is abroad. And he's saying like a new kind of judgmentalism is abroad. I cannot remember a time when people felt such a reproachful urge to correct and, if necessary, punish or see that others did. An age may not be far off when it becomes possible to read minds or divine others' feelings using technology. I'm not at all confident that if we could do this, we wouldn't want to take powers to correct, reprove, or even punish. God, we once believed, possessed such powers, and when the time came, would use them. Knowing that gave us good reason to stand back. Say, look, there was a time when we believed that God was the judge, so we would let him do it. God was watching. God would repay. None of my business was something you could say and mean and a phrase and a sentiment I heard often when younger. He's in his 60s, I suspect. He says, you, didn't, you don't hear it so often now. If not my business, then whose? Perhaps we have not, after all, abolished God. Instead, we have appointed ourselves to the post. <laughs> the reason why we are so judgmental is because there is no God to judge, so we must judge each other. That is our culture. So I want to take Paul's model of confronting idolatry and look at this and show the idol of the self and then show why, how God helps us to reshape our understanding of the self and ultimately to help us to be those who are atheists in a culture that worships self. Do you remember I told you a few weeks ago that early Christians are described as atheists? They are described as those who do not bow down to the pantheon of gods. So in a culture that worships self, the Christians should look distinctive as those who do not worship self with their lives. So first of all then, let's see the error of the idolatry of self. Paul is confronting idolatry. We need to confront the idol of self in our age. Say we're not just self-obsessed, but that we worship the self. And worshiping the self doesn't deliver, and actually it's a great offense towards the living God. See, this is what Paul has been doing. Remember, Paul's been in Ephesus for a couple of years, and the, the, the silversmiths know what he's been preaching so well, they can quote it themselves. What, how do they summarize Paul's message in Athens? Verse 26, And see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, all around the region, western Turkey, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Paul has been challenging the very thing that they worship. Our missional calling, as we proclaim Christ in this culture as individuals in our lives in different ways, it's also to confront the self, the worship of self in our culture. It's as if everyone was walking around with a mirror, looking at themselves, constantly kind of self-obsessed, and not engaging with the reality of the living God who stands behind, behind it all, behind all of culture. And our job is to kind of come there and say, wake up, stop looking at yourself and start to see the living God who stands behind everything and who you were made to worship. We're not just self-obsessed, we worship it. And how can I tell you this? Well, think about how we think about idols in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, there are three kinds of ways that the people of Israel are rebuked for engaging with idols. They're rebuked for loving idols, trusting idols, and obeying idols. Now, remember what an idol is. It's a God replacement. So said that you are made to love God. He was meant to be the first love of your life. 
He, you were made to trust him. He was intended to be the one you looked to when you felt anxious, when you were naturally dealing with the anxieties of life. He is the one you can trust. You were meant to obey him. But instead of doing those things, you did that with all the idols. You loved and you trusted and you obeyed. And I think we can see the same thing going on with the idol of self. We love it, we trust ourselves, and we obey ourselves. So first of all, love. You heard this language in the Old Testament. It talks about spiritual adultery, sorry. Like you were made for me as your husband, and instead you went and pursued other lovers. I was meant to be the first love. But in our culture, we have been taught loudly and clearly to love yourself. Almost to argue, you might argue the, the primary ethical command is no longer love your neighbor, but instead love yourself. My little boy came home from nursery last year, and, uh, and somehow they've been le- singing a song, and we were talking about who we loved, and he said, and of course, love ourselves. <laughs> and I just, I laughed and said, I what do you mean, basically? <laughs> what does it even mean to love yourself? What I should have said, really, is you don't need any help with that. <laughs> you, you, you don't need any help loving the self. That comes pretty naturally to any child as they're waking up, and they, and they want the toy that everybody else has, or they want the food. Loving yourself doesn't really require much training. It kind of comes pretty naturally to you, doesn't it? Actually, we have a whole culture built around the narrative of self-love. If I use this, you might think it's a kind of cliche, but self-care, hashtag self-care. That idea of a whole industry that is constructed around the narrative of loving yourself. I uh, came across this fascinating book called Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. And in this book, this woman is called uh, Tara Isabella Burton. She is a journalist, Oxford scholar, and she kind of takes a survey of all the different religions in secular culture and looks at different things like fandom. We worship kind of various different characters or, you know, Jordan Peterson stuff and all the, all the different idols or religions of our culture. And um, I, she, it's a bit unclear exactly where she stands, but um, she, in one chapter she talks about the wellness industry. And in it, she really makes a very convincing case that actually we are being taught to love and deify the self. So she's talking about this kind of self-care industry. Within this model, self-care in the form of fitness classes, intense meditation apps, mindfulness courses, or 10-step skincare routines becomes at once a form of self-love and self-discipline. We are not challenged to love our neighbors as ourselves or to overcome materialistic urges. Instead, our challenges come in the form of intense and often expensive rituals. That morning soul cycle class, an evening 30-minute beauty routine that reaffirm our commitment to perfecting ourselves. If our bodies were once temples, she says to use a popular diet mantra, but we know it comes from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. We'll come back to that. Now they're miniature gods. Before you were a temple for the living God, now you become the temple to be worshipped, so to speak. Your body is God. And by the way, if you think the, if you need to look at the pounds, that industry, the wellness industry, is a $4.2 trillion industry globally. We spend half of what we spend on medical care on that wellness industry. The money talks. The money shows what we worship. So we love ourselves and we're compelled, we're encouraged to love ourselves at every opportunity. We're called to trust ourselves. Remember I mentioned this idea of idolatry where you trust in false idols. And this is what the living God says in Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong. He's saying, don't trust in chariots and horsemen. When you're faced with the different enemies that you might come against, don't, don't, uh, don't put your trust in these other things. Trust in me, the living God. I am the source of your security. But what is the source of security in our life? It's ourselves. We are told again and again to believe in yourself as we have taken away the God who we could trust in, who is the refuge to which we would run in any concern. As soon as you remove him from the picture, the only thing you've got left to rely on is yourself. Witness the countless classes and mantras and ways that you're taught again and again to kind of believe against the odds that you are powerful, even though you know that you're fragile, even though you know that you're weak, even though you struggle to get out of bed on time. Maybe that's just me. But the the point is, we are being told to kind of believe in ourselves against the reality that we perceive, because where else would we run when we've removed God as the one who we can trust? And then thirdly, obeying the self. 
bowing, bowing, that's what it, you bow down to idols, don't you? We're taught that what I am thinking and what I am feeling about myself must be obeyed, must be lived out. To deny myself, to run against something that I feel will lead to inevitable sadness. I must be authentic. I must follow my heart. And if I don't, I will suffer. The self is the God that must be obeyed. And I'm sorry, as we hear this, I do think there's a real danger as Christians that we get superior. That we kind of go, yeah, everyone else around us, look at them worshipping the self. That's not how Paul looks at it. When Paul talks about this problem of self-worship in Philippians, he, ha- he is weeping. He's weeping at what he sees. That's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame. You could spend a whole 40 minutes just thinking about that as a modern description of our culture. But their end, they worship their belly. And I don't think it's just talking about a kind of gluttony. I think it's saying they worship themselves and you know the thing that the number one thing that you can say to this worship is this worship doesn't deliver we've worshipped God we've taken God out of the picture we worship ourselves and it doesn't lead to flourishing if there's no judge if you remove God as the judge you think that sounds good don't you I, that, oh God, thank goodness I don't have a judge over me I can just judge myself that sounds like a nice idea But as you remove God from the picture of judgment, you remember that you also have to be the source of validation in your life. You have to be the one who validates and says, your truth is actually good. And the problem is, we can't. We can't be a good judge for ourselves, and so we look to others. And this is how one uh, author described this problem of looking to culture for judgment. It says, everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression, so that at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are. Which is a fairly accurate description of social media. That's what he said. That's absolutely brilliant. To be recognized is to draw the gaze and attention of others. To be affirmed is to draw their positive gaze. But if we are all responsible for creating and expressing our own identities, then everyone is in competition with everyone else for our limited attention, and no one is secure enough in their own identity to ground us with their approval. How can we cope with such fierce competition? Remove God from the judgment seat, and it sounds intuitively like a good idea, and actually suddenly you're running around chasing the judgment of others to validate your existence. No judge, no guide. You, you remove God from the picture and suddenly you are responsible for defining your purpose, defining your identity, defining your narr- the narrative of your life, for defining your values, your ethics, your limits. It is exhausting. Just reading that list. That burden that exists on you. Isn't it fascinating? Last week, and you, most of you won't heard it, but Gavin, who got baptized in the evening service, described a life of pursuing success as a way of validating his existence. And the one word he used to describe it was exhausting. It's exhausting. That's why they call millennials the burnout generation. Because they are trying to live this performative, expressive life and determine their narrative and identity and values in a way that is just too much for us to bear. We weren't built this way. No no judge, no guide, no lawmaker. When you are your own lawmaker, you decide your own limits. And the problem is, as human beings, when we put, we we don't make good choices about our own limits. We often misjudge our own limits. You go into a meal, you order two main courses, it's too much. (laughs) Afterwards, you think, no, that was probably a bad idea. I'm not a good judge of my own limits. And unfortunately, we're living in a kind of wreckage a wreckage in our society of those who have ignored the limits. Think about the plastics populating the oceans. Think about those growing up in broken homes because we've said, no, they put no limit on sexual desire. And if it means that you, cause it, you have, to, have to go with your passions and commit adultery and leave your spouse, that's okay. And leave a cultural wreckage behind us. Or think about young people growing up with unwanted pornography addictions in a way that perhaps that's not true in the church, but I suspect it's also true in the culture. 
And it's all because we believe the old lie that unadulterated freedom brings satisfaction. Remove God, you've got no judge, no guide, no lawgiver, and it brings great dissatisfaction, great suffering. But it's more than that, that you've got to hear there is a great offense of worshipping yourself and swapping places with the living God. There's an inversion of the created order here, that when we worship the self, we're, we're, we put ourselves as God. We were always meant to be living under his authority and worshipping him. There's a long-standing Christian formulation of what is the purpose of life. It says the chief end, the chief goal of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Today's culture is enjoy himself and glorify himself forever. We've taken God and it's a great offense to the authority and majesty of the living God. And you know what? There's an ancient pedigree here. This is what human beings have been doing since the beginning. This is the first sin. Do you remember in Adam, in Adam and Eve in the garden, Eve... Is, is being spoken to, and this is the, the lie that Satan gives her in the garden. You know, God said, don't eat this fruit, and she, but he said, you will surely not die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good or evil. You'll be an autonomous individual living your, your best life without reference to the living God who made you. This is, not, this is an old trick. Why do we still fall for it as a society? This is the great challenge you hear again and again through the scriptures. I'll give you one example. This is often the cause of the problem of human pride. There's a man called the king, the prince of Tyre. And he is a wise man. He's amassed great wealth for himself. But out of that success, he then makes himself into God. He, makes, he thinks of himself as a God. And this is what God says to him through the prophet Ezekiel. Because your heart is proud and have said, I am a God, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of God. And then he goes on and says, well, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. You're a wise man. In fact, he talks about how you've gathered gold and silver. He's a successful man. But then, because you make your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of nations. And he talks about bringing judgment on him. And actually, I think that's a bit of a microcosm for our culture. As humanity has achieved so many different achievements, they kind of say, well, we don't really need God anymore. We think in the kind of story of the Enlightenment is humanity has matured, so it doesn't need God anymore. Actually, what's happened is we have become proud, and so we've replaced God with ourselves, just like the Prince of Tyre. So how does God reshape us? How does he challenge this idolatry? Well, first of all, I want to say is that God actually reshapes your self-understanding. Paul is not just confronting the idol here of Artemis. He's telling a better story. He's saying the living God is better than Artemis. In the same way, the Christian story tells a better story of the self, a more satisfying vision of reality. And ultimately, it's about reshaping what you worship. You hear this even in Paul's confrontation. He says, these gods are no gods at all, because he's saying there is a God. There is one you can worship. There is one who's far better than Artemis. This statue, this God of your imagination, that's what he was saying in Acts 17 last week. He said these statues, they're no God. No, there's a living God who stands behind them, who gave you life and breath and everything. Do you remember we said when, you call, when God is calling you to turn from your idols, it's because he has something better for you. Better than the satisfaction you might find in, your, in X or Y or Z. It's because he wants to be the ultimate source of satisfaction in your life. And so the Christian story has a more satisfying and liberating vision of who you are. And it's, it's beautiful. I really believe that. It means dignity, not deity. So it says, on one hand, you have worth. The Christian gospel says, you are valuable. Why? Because God intended that you would exist. You're not a random clump of cells who just randomly came into existence. The living God knows the number of hairs on your head and desired your existence. And more than that, he desires a relationship with you. You are desired. He said you are valuable, you're intended, you're desired. Later on, as you invite Christ into your life, he gives you the privilege of becoming a temple of the living God. Now, I know it kind of, we've heard already that that gets misunderstood as that my body is a temple and I need to work out loads. Obviously, I've not been following that advice myself. My point is, it really is so much more than that. It's this wonderful, incredible idea that the living God would come and put his home in you. 
That Christ is not an idea outside you, but instead he comes to make his residence in your heart and to reshape your desires. And you experience an intimacy with the living God. What an incredible idea. More than that, you belong to Christ, not just yourself. If you put, if invited Christ, well, in fact, you belong to him, even if you don't, haven't invited him, he's saying, you are mine. And that sounds a bit weird. You think, well, I don't belong to anyone. But actually, it's incredibly comforting. This is how the ancients, the Heidelberg Catechism of the 1500s, put it like this. Hear this about you. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Isn't that an incredible truth? That is what we have. We've got something so much better than saying you belong to yourself so you can do what you want. You belong to the living God. So it says you're worth, you have worth, but you're not deity. That's the other the paradox here. It says you have worth, you have dignity, great dignity, but you're not God. And do you know what? That's incredibly liberating. On Wednesday night at Upper Room, Jono uh, leads worship here sometimes, was praying for me, we pray for each other, and he just prayed, God, I thank you that Jeremy, or we, or I can't remember which one it was, but it, we, he is just dust. And as it just hit me, again, as he prayed for me, I am just dust. I'm just dust. That is the most liberating idea. As someone who might be tempted to try and control the universe, try and fix other people's problems, but I'm talking about myself here, but I'm sure some of you can relate to this too. He says, no, you are just dust. You will return to dust. One, your body, at least, will return to dust one day. You're not responsible for fixing other people. You're not responsible for organizing the universe. You're not responsible even for fixing yourself. The living God is sanctifying you and at work in you, living under his power. You're not, you're not necessary for God's plans. God will achieve everything he needs without you. He chooses to use you, but you're not necessary. You are a brick. Do you remember Andrew spoke about this a little while ago? Uh, I was in a churchyard yesterday morning in a, in a, outside in, in Norfolk, and um, this old flint church, with basically you can see each stone in the wall. And, it, and suddenly it just struck me again, uh, when Andrew pre- preached on Ephesians chapter 2, I think it is, he talks about you are just a brick in the temple of the living God. You're not the answer, you're not the Messiah, you're just a brick. And that is wonderful news. That is when, when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary... There is come to me all who are weary of trying to be God. Come to me all who are weary of trying to perform and justify yourself. And it said, come and take my easy yoke upon you. So it says you have dignity but not deity. You need limits, not unadulterated freedom. There's a true freedom found from living within his limits. Because he knows your frame. He knows you. So he puts right and good limits for your benefit. He knows your potential for overwork, so he gives you a day of rest. He knows your capacity for overconsumption, so he says, enjoy my gifts, but don't be mastered by them. Don't be controlled by a desire for them. He knows your capacity for giving, away, giving yourself away to people who don't really love you, so he gives you the gift of marriage, the protection that stops you from being damaged and bruised. He knows you. He says you're not orphans, but sons. You're not an orphan being left to figure out life on your own, but you're a son being guided by your father, whether you're male or female means you don't have to construct and create an identity. You've received an identity. And what's that identity? Beloved. (laughs) Beloved. You are mine. That's so much better than any identity that you might construct for yourself. You don't have to earn your status or justify yourself. You're given it as a son. Not figure out some world-changing purpose. Instead, you've been given a purpose to worship him and be faithful with the responsibilities that he's placed into your life. Your vocation, your relationships, the church he's placed you into. You're called to steward the garden that God has put you in, not try and go and change the world and be the answer to everyone's problems. You're not discovering your gifts in isolation. You're doing it in prayer, in relationship, and in community. There's a much better story of the self here. But the real answer here is not just a new understanding of who you are. It's a total change of your focus. You are freed from a kind of self-obsession to instead being obsessed with the one who made you. And it is wonderful. Think about these words, just, just as an insight into what that feels like. 
This is how Paul speaks about this idea of not being interested in the opinions of others. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, he's writing to the Corinthians, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby equipped. It is the Lord who judges me. As he lives under the judgment of the living God, he says, it is he who will judge me. So I will not live under my own judgment. I will not constantly be judging myself or be judging others or worrying about their judgment. You're freed from a kind of self-obsession, but ultimately you're freed to have your eyes captivated by the one who is worthy of your worship. And why do we worship him? Because he's precisely not like us. He's, the, he's our antithesis in some way. Think about it. We are finite creatures. We, we are obsessed with measuring ourselves in all sorts of ways, both physically and other, because we are finite. We can be measured. But the living God is infinite. One, uh, the psalmist, one psalm, uh, psalm describes him as his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. He's saying, you cannot fathom the depths of the greatness of the living God. We've, we've fathomed the depths of some of your greatness and we worked out it wasn't that great. But he, his greatness is unfathomable, immeasurable. His love is infinite. Think about the idea that his love is infinite. This is how one hymn put it. Could we with ink the ocean fill, talking about basically the magnitude of the love of God, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, so saying if the sky was parchment and we could get all the oceans and turn them into ink, were every stalk on earth a quill, so this is back in the day, they've got your quill, every stalk, every, the sky is on parchment and the oceans are our ink, it wouldn't be enough. With, and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll, the sky, contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Such is the love of God. If you were to take all the ink and all the oceans, all the stalks and all the wheat and all the plants, you could not yet fathom the depths of the love of God. It is so high and wide and deep that you need God's help by his spirit to understand the depths of it. That is the infinite love of the living God. And then we turn to, we worship ourselves instead. We are dependent creatures. We are not self-sufficient. We need other people, we need food, we need sleep, all these things. But the living God is self-sufficient. Remember Acts 17 last week, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. The living God needs nothing. He is self-existent. The I am that I am. He needs nothing. He's infinite. We are time-bound. We have our life in this earth is, is like grass. It grows up one day and is, fle- and is gone the next. Our life on this earth is fleeting. But he is the one, the living God, who has, li- who has existed for eternity. The reason why we worship him is the, the, the total antithesis of who we are. And this genuine worship is the antidote to the obsession with self. So how does this shape our lives? How do we live as an atheist in a culture of self-worship? In a culture of what, that worships the self, we are the atheists. We are the ones who won't worship at the altar of self-exaltation and self-love. We confront the culture by telling a better story with our lives and by worshipping Christ and denying ourselves. It starts with us. You see, just before the passage that I read to you in Acts 19, the Christians in the culture have just burnt their idols. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, about six million pounds worth. The Christians in that community have just burnt their idols. It's a great juxtaposition. As the culture is arguing for the worship of Artemis, the Christians have just said, we don't want to have anything. No magic spell books, nothing, no amulets or charms given over to Artemis. We want to burn it all. It's like saying, no, if we are going to confront the culture with the idol of self, the first thing we have to do is say, are we, are we in danger of worshipping ourselves? It would be so easy to look at those and say, oh, they're living their best life now. Scoff, scoff, scoff. And think, actually, are we just real guilty of the idol of self? In, our cell, in, in a more subtle way. 
And how do we do this? We hear Christ's call to self-denial. We hear Christ's call to deny ourselves. We look at the person of Christ who is the vision of what it is to live in the right ethic. He is our model. Here is a man who gave his whole life, who gave himself as a sacrifice for the sake of humanity. And so too, then, we follow his example of dying to the self. You hear Christ's call in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it mean to die to self? It means die to self-will. If, you, if Christ is the genuinely the Lord of your life, there will be moments, expect moments, when following Christ will call you to things you don't really want to do. If your Christian life never involves you doing things that you don't really want to do, perhaps you've not really understood the call to die to self. To die to self-will. Think about Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's looking at the cross the next day. He's saying, I don't want to do this. This is, this is costly. Can you believe that? Not my will, but your will be done. As he looks and sees the pain of the cross, he says, no, not my will, but your will be done. Are you willing to say that to Christ? We die to self-sufficiency. We celebrate our dependence. We broadcast it. We highlight to all the people around us that actually we can't get through life without God. As you go through difficult trials, or quite frankly, as you just go through life, you take opportunities to speak to the people around you and say, you know what, I wouldn't have got through that if it wasn't for the power of prayer. And it, I wouldn't have got through that if it wasn't for the people who God placed around me or the sense of his love or whatever it was, that the way that God was sustaining you. you. You celebrate and you shout from the rooftops, I cannot do life by myself. I am not self-sufficient and I rely on the living God. That's what Paul does when he boasts in his weakness. We die to self-worship. I want to apply this to how we pray. Sometimes the way we pray is actually very self-focused. I want you to go home, and the next time you're praying, I want you to, not now, <laughs> I want you to just try and pray for a minute to God without referencing yourself. It's absolutely right that we, that we thank God for his salvation and everything that he's done in our lives, but just try a minute for a minute to pray without talking about yourself, adoring him only, celebrating him. You will find it harder than you realize because we're so used to even making the Christian life all about us rather than just being caught up in the majesty of the living God, in his unsearchable greatness. We die to self-worship. We die to self-promotion. As we experience an awe, as we gaze upon the beauty of the living God, we actually lose the focus on ourselves and actually we start to think, how can we honor and celebrate others? Remember the Bible talks about outdoing one another and showing honor, looking for opportunities to highlight and celebrate the strengths of the people around you to celebrate the gifts that God's placed in other people, to constantly fight the pride that grows up within your heart and celebrate others. Are you the guy at work who everyone looks around and goes, he's always celebrating other people. He's never talking about himself. He's always celebrating what other people do. I think that's what the Christian should look like. There's a call to make much of Christ here. That's ultimately where this lands. Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist in John chapter 3 uh, Jesus is baptizing people and, uh, and, the, and, the, and some people come to him and say, aren't you concerned? Aren't you worried? Jesus is doing all the baptisms. Why are you, uh, you know, you were the John the Baptist, so to speak. Isn't this your gig? What's John's response? He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase. He must be exalted. He must be the one who people look at and see, in my life, they see Christ being exalted. My life is about making much of Christ. In a world that is ignoring the living God, that is ultimately the problem we face, the world is ignoring the living God, you have an opportunity to loudly and clearly point to Christ with your life. This is the defining purpose of your life, brothers and sisters. I have received a prophetic word once that, that, that I think captures this, but I would give it to, share it with all of you. As this guy said, look, your, your life used to be about wanting a whole stadium of people to be chanting Moses, that's my surname, Moses, Moses, Moses. <laughs> right? And there's great truth to that. Um, and then he said, and, and, and the stadium is shifting. And they are shouting Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that is, a, that is the narrative of our lives now. We are no longer seeking that they might be shouting 
Katrina or Gavin or whatever it is, instead to be shouting Jesus, to be exalting him because of what your life, because of the way they see Christ at work in you. And there's a call to sacrifice, a call to put the needs of others first. Each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. As you die to self, you'll take looking for opportunities to serve your community, your friends, your work colleagues, your, your families, your, your spouse, to daily lay aside your self-interest. As we close then, I want us to return to the idea of Christ as our model. Paul, Paul didn't risk his life. He said, okay, I'll go. I'll carry on for the next opportunity. Jesus did give his life. Christ is our ultimate picture of what it means to live faithfully under the living God, who laid down his life, who said no to temptation, who didn't give in, who didn't follow his heart, who didn't live a life of individualism, but was willing to give up his life, who revealed God in all his beautiful splendor to us, and also in his humility, Incredible. One who laid aside the majesty at the right hand of the Father and stepped into our world. And he did it so that you might be liberated from self-obsession, liberated from self-worship, forgiven, and instead to live a life of genuine worship of the living God. Christ sees you turned in on yourself, untethered from his lordship, stuck in a posture of self-justification and self-exaltation. He sees that, and he moves towards you. <laughs> and he says, don't look at yourself anymore. Don't put yourself on the throne anymore. Lay down your self-worship and come and worship me. Come and worship the one you were made for. That is the call. Whether you're not a Christian, hear that invitation to become a Christ follower, to make him the Lord of your life, the one who's the ultimate object of your worship. And if you are a Christian, Hear this call to lay down self-worship.